Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. A few days ago, I emailed the uh, schedule for this conference to George Weigel, and a few hours later, he replied to me from Rome, um, that's Mother Mary Christa, not to you, pal. Um, our final speaker is Mother Mary Christa Nutt, Superior General of the Religious Sisters of Mercy of Alma, a community that is celebrating its 50th year this year. Mother Mary Christa um, received her STD, her Doctorate in Sacred Theology, from the Angelicum, and she wrote there on the vow of obedience in St. Thomas Aquinas. Please welcome Mother Mary Christa. Thank you very much. I'm very grateful to, be, uh, to have been invited to speak today. Um, I'm aware of time. So I'm going to try to not read too quickly, but I might have a little more than 20 minutes here. Um, the title of my talk, which is going to end up a compliment, um, appropriately so, to Dr. Grabowski's talk, is called Women and Men in the Life and Ministry of the Church. In today's cultural milieu, a title like this is actually posing a question often. Do men and women, but especially do women, participate fully in the life and ministry of the Catholic Church? The Catholic Church, as we know, is one of the few institutions in the Western world that continues to differentiate some of the ministries that are open to men and women and to promote certain ministries or vocations based on sex. The obvious deeper question at hand is how, then, does the Church view men and women relative to each other? A second implied question is whether or not this view is archaic, unmodern, wrong, or stifling to women. Is a binary classification of sex possible anymore? Considering these questions and building upon the work of some of the presenters at the Symposium on the Priesthood given last February at the Vatican, there are two broad topics that I intend to address in the next 20 minutes. How does the Church view man and woman? And how does an understanding of man and woman by faith and reason lead to understanding their participation in the church's life and ministry? I will not be able to do more today than to suggest where further development would be helpful. How the church views men and women is a question that ultimately asks what a human person is and how the soul and body of a human person are related, and these are philosophical questions. According to Sister Mary Prudence Allen, a sister of my own community, in her three-volume work, The Concept of Woman, there are five possible ways to understand sex differences between men and women. First, there is what she calls sex unity, wherein men and women are considered equal and not significantly different. Second, there is sex neutrality, and this model goes beyond the idea of sex unity that differences are not significant to claim that there are no differences at all between men and women. Third, there is sex polarity that envisions men and women as significantly different and men as superior to women. And fourth, there is also reverse sex polarity. And this model acknowledges that men and women are significantly different and asserts that women are superior to men. And finally, there is integral sex complementarity. This position sees men and women as significantly different 
but of equal dignity. The latter is the position of the Catholic Church, according to the Magisterium of St. John Paul II. Sister Prudence Allen's work shows that sex complementarity began to emerge in the Church's intellectual tradition as early as St. Augustine in the end of the 4th and start of the 5th century. One may cogently argue that this perspective was inaugurated with the incarnation of Christ and existed already in a seed form within Israel. Integral sex complementarity essentially proposes three things. First, that men and women are alike, that men and women alike possess immaterial intelligent souls capable of knowledge and love, and that they are both in the image and likeness of God, and thus both men and women have an equal dignity, and they are integral in themselves, and that is, they are wanted for their own sake by God. Two, that in the essence of the souls of men and women, both are capable of receiving the grace of God, and both receive the theological virtues to intellect and will, and they can both achieve union with God with God's help. And three, that men and women are significantly differentiated, not only physically, but according to categories that Allen describes as metaphysical, epistemological, and moral. Thus, men and women relate to reality in a differentiated way, each with a unique gift, so to speak. Allen also shows that each model of the relationship between the sexes ultimately rests on certain philosophical positions. For example, sex neutrality and sex unity imply anthropological dualism. If men and women are viewed as entirely the same while their bodies are patently different, then the body must in some way be detached or separated from what is essential to personal identity and dignity. Integral sex complementarity also implies certain defined philosophical commitments and eliminates others. Namely, if men and women possess the same powers of soul that ensure their equal dignity, yet without being alienated from their physical characteristics of sex difference, then we must suppose a metaphysical unity of body and soul. Integral sex complementarity presupposes, therefore, a classical hylomorphic composition of reality. That alone allows us to rationally articulate a profound unity of body and soul. As you know, metaphysical hylomorphism articulates that formal immaterial causes or principles of life are the principles that enliven and inform matter. Hylomorphism undergirds not just a view of the unity of the body and soul of the human being, but grasps that a universe is full of organic creatures with immaterial principles of life ordered by finalities. It is a universe of natures. This perspective is ultimately foundational to a worldview in which creation is imbued with an intelligible order, made in and through the word or logos of God. It is a perspective not only consistent with a classical patrimony of human thought about the universe, but with revelation. One may think of the Gospel of John. A hylomorphic realism undergirds a view where the body and soul are principles of the human being, but where the soul subsists after death and transcends the body. We can know this by reason, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, in a number of ways confirmed by our everyday experience. I do not want to gloss over the implications of what I have just mentioned about the transcendence of each human soul too quickly before looking at what is properly feminine and masculine. Deeper than the level of sex differentiation, 
There is the unrepeated beauty of each human soul, whether that of a man or a woman. If the souls of human beings transcend the body and are capable of intellectual knowing, that can even participate in the life of God, then jumping too quickly to the distinctions between men and women or exaggerating the importance of sex differentiation can leave the primacy or the uniqueness of each human being overshadowed. This sometimes leads to a forced or overly constraining image of what it is to be a woman or a man and what is proper to woman or man as such. Human persons are not entirely determined by necessary biological and organic functions in the same way that animals are, even if we are deeply united in body and soul. Our rationality makes us capable of free choice and moral action, actions that use but transcend the body. This is especially evident in each person's unique co capacity to cooperate with divine grace. The reality of sex differences should not lead to an oversimplistic view of the human individual person, who, however, always exists as a man or a woman. I think our language about the femininity or masculinity of the soul has to be carefully nuanced and qualified. That said, acknowledging the physical differences that belong to sex are not sealed off from the psychological and spiritual lives of men and women is crucial to understanding vocation and ministry in the church. It indicates that men and women have differentiated emotional and psychological propensities. All the aspects of personhood tied more or less directly to the body form how a man and a woman perceive reality and act on reality, and this accounts for significant differentiation. In other words, the obvious biological differences of men and women provide a window to understand what makes a human being a woman and not a man at the level of the sensitive and rational powers, too. Looking at the human person from the hylomorphic perspective, every mature human person has an innate and fundamental capacity for either maternity or paternity that includes but cannot be exhausted by physical motherhood or fatherhood. Motherhood and fatherhood, we can conclude, go beyond physical conception and birth. Each parent uniquely contributes to the growth of a child's physical, spiritual, emotional, and psychological life in a way that is differentiated and analogous to the physical specificity of being a man or a woman. What about grace and its effects? Can grace not allow the person to transcend sex? The same God of the natural forms of the universe is the author of grace and salvation. Both men and women are heirs to the kingdom, and both are born into the Trinitarian life by grace through baptism into Christ. Participation in the Trinitarian life by grace is the fundamental participation of all the baptized in the Church. In this fullest sense of participation, there is no differentiation between man and woman, as St. Paul wrote in the letter to the Galatians. In Christianity, the reception of supernatural grace is the fundamental equalizer of men and women which does not fail to respect sex differentiation, since nature is entirely respected and uplifted by grace. According to Sister Prudence Allen, it was precisely the doctrine of grace that allowed the development of the concept of integral sex complementarity, which theory, she argues, exists in a fully articulated form only within the Catholic Church. Grace must be spoken about in the context of the Church, since it is entrusted by Christ to his body, the Church, who is mother and bride, and is transmitted especially in the sacraments, which prolong the grace of the Lord's salvific passion, death, and resurrection in time. The grace of God by its essence incorporates men and women into the mystical body of Christ, 
It is the life of grace that begets mission in the church. As the Father sends the Son and the Holy Spirit in mission, so by grace all men and women are incorporated into the Trinitarian missions, each taking a part in the living mission of the whole like the parts of a body, as St. Paul says. I am now going to switch my language from the roles and participation of men and women in the church to that of vocation, which is where ministry according to sex differentiation most deeply plays out in the life of the church. It is only in light of grace and the church that one can speak of vocation. Vocation is a call or a mission given by God to an individual. It implies a relationship both initiated and fulfilled by participation in the life of God in his church. It is opportune here to correct a typical but false thought about the church's very nature, sometimes construed from her moral teachings. Negative commands or judgments, the thou shall nots, are not the essence of the church's mission, but rather they provide the threshold below which is the loss of the life of grace and ultimately is self-destruction. The church commands men and women negatively to refrain from what is sinful because it is harmful to them in the deepest ways. She delineates the minimum or baseline in the moral life in order to foster the optimization of divine life in the soul. The church understands men and women in their deepest needs and so her guidance primarily is to convert men and women, that is, turn them from an unfulfilling path toward personal and communal fulfillment in the Trinitarian life. The essence of the church's mission is to facilitate the fulfillment of natural desire for transcendence in man and woman and the supernatural impetus of grace until the consummation of the soul and all souls is achieved by the vision of God in heaven. The church does this through her sacraments and through her instruction. The logic of the church's moral prohibitions can be appropriated to her understanding of differentiated vocations of men and women in the church. The church does not so much forbid women to be priests as much as she calls each man and woman alike to fulfill and elevate the particular natural inclinations and gifts in participation with Trinitarian grace. Vocation is a call for, not a restriction from. The differentiation of vocations in the church is not based only on the physical body, nor on any physical lack, but on God-given natural and supernatural qualities and capacities, bestowed by God as a unique participation in the mission of Christ, to contribute to the panoply of interrelated manifestations of grace in a way that never alienates nature or supernatural inclinations, but builds on and develops nature. If woman weren't naturally differentiated from man, and if her way of differentiation did not correspond to deeper inclinations in her soul, vocations based on sex would be constraining. For the dualist, or the materialist, or the voluntarist, differentiated vocations rob men and women of freedom and opportunity. But from a hylomorphic perspective, one can see that it is fitting and empowering that the Church invites participation in the Trinitarian life according to each person's unique existence in body and soul. Vocations in the church, then, are discerned and cooperated with freely, and they are not self-determined. They are initiated by God and understood by us progressively. A vocation calls forth latent aptitudes in nature and grace within a person and puts them at the service of the common good. Since union with the Trinity is only attained in and through Christ, an authentic vocation will also conform a person who lives it faithfully to Christ, crucified, died, and resurrected. As a woman presenting today, 
I'll switch now to speak of the particular vocation of woman in the church. In the talk, The Common Priesthood and the Sacrament of Matrimony, given at the Vatican in 2022, Martha Olavarieta de Gomez Serrano spoke on the rich vocation to motherhood, so I'll focus on the vocation of women religious. I'll start by turning to what one could call the marks of feminine differentiation that specify how a woman participates in the life of the church. According to Mulieris Dignitatum, woman is called in the church to virginity and motherhood. In light of what is unique to her, a woman has a certain priority in the order of love. As she knows and loves a child first in a more intimate way and distinctly from the way a man does, so God entrusts the human being to her in a special way. Man is first entrusted to woman, and woman in this sense is the educator of man. As noted by Linda Pocher in her talk at the same Vatican Symposium mentioned earlier, the Marian principle in the church, to exemplify the feminine priority in the order of love, Pope St. John Paul II used the model of the Marian and Petrine dimensions of the church, where the Marian is prior. Christ chose to be born a man. He chose to become incarnate through motherhood. Thus, he established in the church a Marian dimension to every grace. All grace comes from Christ through the Blessed Mother. The grace of the hierarchical church, the Petrine dimension, which distributes the sacramental graces of Christ, likewise comes first through the Marian dimension. Thus, the Marian dimension has a certain priority in regard to the hierarchical church. Yet, from another perspective, the hierarchical dimension of the church proceeds from the Marian dimension, inasmuch as the priest's role is dis in distributing grace through the sacraments, precedes the cooperation of the children of God and the Marian vocations of motherhood and virginity. There is a reciprocity and a circularity, or a complementarity, so to speak, among the Marian and the Petrine dimensions of the church. And there is at the level of as there is at the level of nature between men and women. There exists a complementarity at the level of grace in a way analogous to integral sex complementarity, where the relationship of Christ to his church is the prime analogate and human marriage based on integral sex complementarity is a secondary analogy, pointing pedagog pedagogically to the life to come. Above all, the church looks to the Blessed Virgin Mary to see how grace has worked in the heart of a woman unblemished by sin. While both a man and a woman relate to the mother of God, a woman uniquely imitates and participates in the motherhood of Mary, Mary and the spousal relationship of the church to Christ. In a special and radical way, the imitation of the Blessed Mother pertains to religious vowed to God in poverty, chastity, and obedience. Without renouncing her primordial call to a spousal relationship and motherhood, some women are called to vowed virginity for the sake of the kingdom of God. Nothing affirms the church's perspective that woman has a value in herself apart from man, and that a woman's motherhood is principally spiritual as the vocation to consecrated virginity. A religious woman is spousal to Christ in a unique way by renouncing earthly marriage and vowing ch chastity and obedience and poverty to God, which is a special participation in the redemption re we read in the Magisterium, in imitation of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Mediatrix, Auxiliatrix, and Eudrix. Religious have a special mode of life, always in a communion of common life, 
bonded together by participation in a charism, and ordered to a supernatural common good by a rule and vowed obedience. Thus religious have been called by the magisterial documents experts in communion. It is this unique way of communion that begets a special participation in the Marian ministry in the church. Women and men alike live the mystery of religious life, but women religious uniquely and mysteriously provide in the church a certain spiritual maternity in likeness to the Blessed Mother and to the church herself. In the rosy light that I have just cast upon the vocation of women religious as a personal and unique gift from God, why does the conversation surrounding the exercise of ministry in the church often devolve into a question of who wields power? At the already mentioned symposium given at the Vatican, in her talk, Ministries, Service, and Prophecy, Sister Alessandra Smerili spoke about the need for a paradigmatic recontextualization about the roles of men and women and charism and institution in the church. Rather than a dialectic of power, she commented, the church's perspective should be one of covenant and gift. I would add that if the conversation about ministry and life in the church is to shift away from a focus on power and toward a perspective of gift and complementarity between a Marian and a Petrine dimension or between a feminine and a masculine dimension, we not only need the light of faith, we also have to be able to accept the meaning of nature and God's priority in nature and grace. As Pope Francis has pointed out, not only are we called to recognize and respect the delicate balance of nature as it is found in ecosystems and reverenced by ecologists, we must also study, acknowledge, and reverence human nature. In this light, a recovery of certain elements of classical metaphysical worldview is a presupposition for a penetrating grasp of the human person, whereby the body and the soul may be seen at their healthiest in a harmonious unity. To understand ministry in the church as a truly organic and yet also always hierarchical communion, where each person gives what has first been given by the Lord to his or her own fulfillment and joy, an obediential and reverential response to truth known in nature as much as in revelation is requisite. As thoroughly addressed by Ms. Brudere in her talk towards an existential collaboration between ministerial priesthood and common priesthood, underlying the beauty of the interplay and communion between the authority given to the priest as a man for the sacramental life of the church, or to a woman in religious vows, or to spouses in the bond of matrimony, we have to see the uniqueness of man and woman in their nature, each endowed and entrusted with a complementary but different authority for the promotion of human life and grace. Thank you. Thank you, Mother Mary Krista. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.